these things so that they are uh, entertaining to you and they uh, basically meet the needs that all people have. Uh, but then at the end, we're going to kind of re, uh, reapproach the topic from uh, how it's useful to you as a player. Uh, you know, some of you may be designers, I hope a lot of you are, um, but if you are uh, playing, how can you use the concepts that uh, I've built into the game or that hopefully a good designer has built into the game uh, to get you more enjoyment out of the game and to help kind of evangelize, because uh, every time you play a game, you're hopefully convincing someone else to play with you. So. A little bit about my background. Uh, since you're here, you probably know me from uh, the majority of my work in uh, tabletop games. I developed Vampire the Masquerade for, oh god, 15 years. Uh, I was the lead designer and developer on Vampire the Requiem. Uh, I did the Ravenloft uh, campaign setting for third edition of Dungeons and Dragons. I also worked a little bit on the Scarred Lands and on the Exalted game. Uh, but more recently, my work has taken me into video games. Uh, I was a designer on the World of Darkness game uh, in development with CCP, and I was also the lead multiplayer designer for Assassin's Creed Revelations. Uh, you can tell the difference between those two because that second one actually exists. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, and a lot of my recent work has been in uh, VR specifically. I was the game director on Werewolves Within, and I uh, also designed some of the Star Trek Bridge Crew game that's coming out at the end of the month. So uh, if you have any interest in VR, hopefully you'll check out those titles. So uh, why do we play games? Uh, we play games very simply because they engage us. A lot of times you'll hear designers talk about this idea of finding the fun, uh, about uh, let's go back to what's fun, what's enjoyable about this. Uh, but I think engagement is a better word than because uh, if you've played any game that involves uh, Bleed, for example, you'll know that it's not necessarily all smiles and good times. There's a wider emotional palette uh, that comes out of gameplay than just fun. You can be fearful, you can be uh, emotionally invested, you can feel love for uh, another player, another character, feel love for your own character, and a lot of times uh, the experience that the character has in the game, or whatever the, the uh, operational method of the game is, that's gonna stick with you outside the game itself. Uh, oftentimes a game is more than just a game, and we're gonna see a little bit more about why that is here. Fun is an outcome, uh, fear is an outcome, uh, love, joy, all of these are outcomes, and so games are great at engaging us by creating these outcomes. So, uh, what the hell am I talking about? This is an evolving understanding of uh, player motivation, and a lot of it is driven by some discoveries that were made in the 20th century and carrying forward into the 21st century. And so the first of which is basically the fact that uh, people are monkeys, right? And so uh, Harry Harlow uh, was a psychologist that worked with uh, some motivational experiments. The most significant of which for what we're talking about here is the fact that uh, heretofore, motivation was assumed to be purely extrinsic. That you would do something for a reward or to avoid a consequence. If you were uh, hungry, right, you'd go do something to get you food. Uh, if you were uh, promised uh, money in response to taking an action, you would do that. Carrots and sticks, right? Well, what Harlow found, uh, there was an experiment that uh, he was doing with these, these rhesus macaques, and they're very, very similar to us. Uh, is that these extrinsic motivations, these promises of rewards, weren't actually all that motivated us. 
there was a puzzle that Harlow was working with with these monkeys. A very simple puzzle with a hinge and a latch, and something you know. Hopefully, you guys can figure out in a matter of seconds. But you know, when you're a monkey, it's a little more invested for you. But uh, Harlow discovered that they were using these puzzles to uh, give monkeys rewards. But when they stopped giving the rewards, the monkeys kept doing the puzzles anyway. And so what emerged from this is the idea of there is intrinsic motivation, right? There is something worth doing for its own sake. A lot of times I hear that said, nothing is worth doing for its own sake. Well, that's not true. In fact, the things that most satisfy us are worth doing for their own sake. But the important part is that we get to decide what its own sake is. Is this important to me? Is this something I want to do? And if so, why? So the identification of uh, this intrinsic motivation, this, this personal desire to do something, paved the way for an understanding of human needs, which is largely the basis of self-determination theory. Uh, I have taken a lot of these photos from the LARP gallery, so if you see yourself up here, thank you. Um, and self-determination theory concerns itself with these three key principles that are universal to all people. Everybody has some amount of these. The first of which is mastery. People seek mastery. Mastery is the idea that you are going to get better at the things that you do. You go to work every day for 10 years. I would hope to God that for 10 years you are better at your job than when you started it 10 years ago, right? Because you've learned more about it and you find uh, you know, tricks of the trade. You learn the ins and outs of work. But games do this too. You get better at games. And this is represented in concepts like experience points uh, or narrative rewards. You know, We start out the game as a bunch of uh, uh, neonates, but over the course of the chronicle, I become the prince and you become my seneschal, those sorts of things. Uh, so the game is good at telling us that we have achieved in it, and it makes us feel good about ourselves. Self-determination theory also uh, relies on the, or, or a component of it, is autonomy, uh, is the desire to make our own fates. We are in control of our own destinies. We choose these things. Autonomy is not necessarily independence. It doesn't mean that you don't want anybody else, that it's just you alone. Uh, autonomy means that you are choosing what to fulfill. And uh, the interesting part about autonomy is that if it is meeting the desire of what you got here for in the first place, you don't have to have free will, right? I can have a very strict, linear, uh, you know, in games we would often call these railroad type chronicles where I am definitely taking you from A to B to C. But if that's what you want to do anyway, it will satisfy your autonomy. It doesn't have to be completely free choice sandbox style game. So uh, an example I like to use here is, let's say we're gonna play a Batman game, right? If we're gonna play a Batman game, you probably want to fight the Joker at some point, right? So I can work the Joker into that game. You'll expect it, you'll want it, and it won't matter that I have determined beforehand that you're going to fight the Joker because it's what you want conceptually. In a game about vampires, you're probably gonna want to encounter blood at some point. Right? So these are things that we're kind of buying into, the authenticity of the idea that what the game is about is going to cater to us. And finally, there is the idea of relatedness. Relatedness can be a relatedness between players. Uh, you and I accomplish something in the game and you acknowledge it. Uh, Skyrim is a great example here, where the game uh, calls you the Dragon Slayer. Once you've you know, destroyed that first dragon, you kind of play into that. And the world tells you, hey, good job. What you did over there is important. Uh, but you see a lot of relatedness as well, especially in multiplayer games, because everything you do somehow affects every other player. 
So you're finding meaning in the world, and other players are finding meaning in the world as a result of your actions, and you relate to their actions. So think of that one as uh, meaning as well. It doesn't have to be purely multiplayer. It doesn't have to be player to player. It doesn't have to be social. It can be the world itself responding to you or an NPC responding to you. Uh, but largely here, uh, keep in mind for relatedness that it's showing you the meaning, the outcomes of your actions. And so one of the things that uh, these three ideas here, uh, I don't want to oversell this, but these three ideas are the most important component of game design to have emerged in the last hundred years sound like you're making a big deal out of it, right? <laughs> Most important thing you'll ever fucking know. And uh, what is important about these two is that uh, they don't rely on you to report them to me. They can be observed in laboratory conditions. They can be observed by an outside observer watching, seeing them in you, and you demonstrate them. In fact, if you were to self-report, you would probably give a little bit of skewed data here. You would probably say, oh, I feel very strongly about this, not so much about this. Well, I can't always trust you to give me, to verbalize the truth of your situation. Uh, and that's why uh, these are observable qualitative research. Um, in the appendix later, I'll provide some links to some uh, studies online that you can look up if you care about this stuff. I, I love data, I'm a nerd like that. Um, but uh, I won't spend a huge amount of time with that here. Uh, but uh, that is the underlying importance of this is that these are human needs, universal needs. They are demonstrably true. And so, trust me, I know what I'm talking about. Right? Also, to kind of break from that initial idea, I wanted to go a little bit into the idea of uh, stages of play. Stages of play are an educational theory that was advanced originally by Mildred Park and Newhall. And uh, so there's a couple of different concepts here. Not all play is created equal. When we sit down to play, it's not always the same activity. And so we identify these with the idea of being unoccupied. Not playing is a kind of definition of play. If you're not doing something, okay, well, we're not going to count that. Second is the idea of solitary play. This is you going and doing something by yourself. Uh, Mildred Parton Newhall specifically observed these in uh, a course of children's education, that these would progressively, as the children got older, um, they would demonstrate a kind of hierarchical ladder of these. Everybody plays by themselves, right? You're playing a video game by yourself, or as a child, you're playing with a toy, you're zooming little trucks around. That's solitary play. Next, there's onlooker play. This is where it starts to socialize. In fact, you're gonna see that as we climb up this ladder, more and more social component is an expected part of this. And so onlooker play is me watching you play. I can also talk about it a little bit with you. I'm not necessarily participating in the activity itself, but I see and recognize, hey, you're doing something. That's pretty cool. I'm interested in it. Next, we have the idea of parallel play. So you see this a lot in LARPs, for example. Um, I'm going to show you, well, let's approach it from the sense, uh, as a very young child, I'm on the playground. I'm over here on the swings. You're over here on the sand, playing in the sandbox. We're playing in parallel. We're on the playground together. We're not doing anything that necessarily correlates to one another, but we're aware of each other's presence. And simply knowing that other player's presence is very key. It suddenly becomes something other than solitary play. It becomes something where I relate to that other player. And then obviously, as we saw in the last slide, is one of the needs that we all had. It makes me comfortable. It satisfies me to know that you're also on the playground. Uh, in LARPs, this happens a lot because I'm involved in this particular plot thread. You're involved in that particular plot thread. We never may cross paths. We may never cross paths with one another, but we know each other are there. 
And in fact, sometimes simply knowing the scope of the LARP uh, is satisfactory in and of itself. If I'm part taking part of something that has hundreds, maybe even a thousand people in it, it feels like I'm uh, much more meaningful than something that uh, is inherently small. I can find other meaning in that small group. I can have a very personal or introspective satisfaction there. But knowing the volume of other people and being aware of it is critical to this idea. Moving up from there is associative play. Uh, this is where we are both doing something similar, uh, but we're not necessarily coordinating. One of my favorite examples here is think that we're playing like a squad shooter, right? You're in the game, I'm in the game, you're in the game, you're in the game, and you just run off and you got guns blazing and you're throwing grenades and you're like, no man, come on back over here. Let's all work together and do it. No, you're not having it. You're off doing that. And so there is always the ability for someone to go their own way, to have to exercise their own autonomy there. It doesn't necessarily have to be a negative example. I was kind of kidding with that shooter example. Uh, but the fact that we are definitely engaged in the same activity, just not necessarily coordinating to do it. And coordinating to do it really reaches the apex here of these stages of play. It's when we're cooperative, when I sacrifice my own personal goals or my own personal goals coincide with those of the group, and we actually coordinate with other players. We do stuff together. Uh, you see this in Vampire already from the idea of the sects themselves, right? What is, the, what is a sect but a group of vampires generally cooperating to put forth an agenda? May or may not be true uh, in the game last night. I understand someone got stuffed down a toilet, uh, but uh, still. Uh, so people had to work together to stuff Mark in that toilet, right? There's some cooperative play. Games also are really good at providing us a steady stream of feedback to our actions. We see the outcomes of our actions. Uh, one of the examples I like to use here is a headshot in a shooter video game, right? The head blows up, a little fly text comes up, plus 10 XP, you think, oh, that was pretty good. That game just told me I did a good job there. You get the exploding head, you get extra points. It all works really well. Well, the game has then told you, good job, you have accomplished something here. And in fact, games, are better at satisfying these needs, at showing us these feedbacks, than real life often is. Uh, in many cases, life just isn't fair. You can typically rely on a game to be fair because the game communicates to you the rules. Whether you read the rule book or whether you're playing a video game and you're led through a tutorial, the game is informing you what it expects of you, right? And so uh, for, let's go back to that, that job example. You worked at your job for 10 years, and hopefully you've demonstrated some mastery. You're better at your job now. And uh, you've got relatedness to your coworkers there at the place. And uh, you've yeah, given a little bit more authority, a little bit more room to determine your own work. So all of these needs are roughly being met. But then you're up for a promotion, and instead the boss's son gets the promotion. Life isn't fair, right? A video game or, or a game will never do that to you. Or if it does, it's probably not a very well-designed game, right? You're gonna get frustrated. I did everything you asked of me, game, and I get to pull the rug out from under me. These things are why, as a designer, every player is buying into a social contract for the game that's designed, right? When you come to sit down at the table, you know we're all playing using the same rules. You know that I'm gonna roll my dice pool, you're gonna roll your dice pool. And uh, of course, the storyteller can kind of cheat this, can choose to uh, exercise their own power uh, when it is more satisfying to do so. Um, but in general, we trust that a game is going to be fair to us. And even games that are uh, asymmetrical in their play, there's a light right there hitting me right in the eye, so 
Uh, even games that are asymmetrical. Uh, I mentioned my game Werewolves, or my team's game Werewolves Within earlier. Uh, this is a game with an information disparity, right? There is a group of eight players, and two of them, let's say, are the werewolves, and the werewolves know who each other are, and the other six players at the table are the townsfolk, and they don't know each other's identities. So the gameplay itself revolves around this information disparity. So we've cheated in the favor of the werewolves, but then the game activity itself is conversation among the players to figure out who the werewolves are. The werewolves are gonna lie, the townsfolk are probably gonna not know entirely what's going on, and so the sharing of information becomes the gameplay there. And then of course, uh, at the end of the game, there is, uh, everyone votes and uh, uh, eliminates a player, and there's plenty of good feedbacks there. Uh, the fireballs shoot and, and uh, take the player out of the game, so you see the results of your actions. All right, so with those kind of basic principles in mind, let's look at some specifics of uh, case studies that kind of demonstrate what I'm talking about here. So the first of which, there was a study performed at uh, an American series of schools in the 1980s, and there were three distinct groups of students who were taken out for their art class. One of the groups of students was promised a reward. You're gonna do some art, we're gonna give you an award, good job, I'm gonna pat you on the back. The second group, uh, they did art, and uh, at, after they had uh, completed their illustrations or paintings, some of them were given awards as a kind of pat on the back, good job, but they didn't know they had it coming. And finally, the last group was given no reward, uh, no extrinsic reward. They were just doing art for art's own sake. And so this test went on for a while. They observed the behaviors of the children, and then over time, they came back to the kids, and they said, all right, kids, who wants to do some art today? Which group was the group that wanted to do art? It was the ones that weren't promised the extrinsic reward. It was the ones who were already doing art for art's sake. The other kids like, well, I'll do it if you give me a prize for it. <laughs> All right, well, now that I've offered to pay you for your art, I have actually threatened, I've undermined your intrinsic desire to do art. I've, I've already bribed you, and now you're expecting the bribe going forward. And so that really damages the motivation over time, especially uh, this extrinsic motivation can, can crush out and even completely negate your intrinsic motivation to do something. So uh, think about that next time you go to work. Would you be there if you weren't paid to be there? Probably not. All right, so uh, also the context of our activity is important. Games make us want to do stuff that we wouldn't necessarily normally want to do. And so a separate school study here, this was in West Nottinghamshire College, and uh, this college reported a 94% increase in improvement in key skills. This was a kind of remedial class, this was students who had fallen behind, and uh, they got really excited about learning. In fact, uh, one of the teachers says they would come to knocking on the staff room door and wouldn't let us go until we had taught them how to calculate area. <laughs> Who wants to calculate area, right? It's just kind of abstract, multiply, you want to calculate area? <laughs> that guy right there, <laughs> you're not one of the 94%, you're already excited about doing it. Uh, but why did these kids want to do it all of a sudden? Why this 94% increase? Well, it was because the class was teaching using a modded version of Neverwinter Nights. So uh, the, the, the players, the students had to figure out uh, how much, uh, or how many goods they could fit into their ship 
and uh, so they could set sail and go on their adventure. And all of a sudden, they needed to know area because they had to figure out how much stuff they could get on the ship. So providing the context here of you're doing this in the game suddenly made the students want to do it. They had something to relate it to. You know, uh, it, it wasn't this abstract concept anymore. It had uh, a motivation to it that the players were already interested in. They wanted to see the results of their actions, so they learned to figure out area. Good on them. Let's, you know, here, when am I ever going to use math? Well, you're going to use it to fill your damn ship and never win your nights, right? <laughs> All right, so this is one of my favorites. The uh, idea here is that uh, how we visualize ourselves when we play is really, really critical to our enjoyment of the game. Uh, I don't know if you guys all made the um, premiere of the uh, documentary on Thursday night. Uh, did you do that? Uh, and if so, uh, there was a question at the end about uh, the fashion design. And this right here is part of why White Wolf has hired a fashion designer to be the art director for the new edition of the book. They know how important it is that you see yourself as something you want to be. And so this is a study uh, that was performed by Nikki and Jeremy Bailson. Uh, at Stanford University, and the results uh, were what they came to call the Proteus effect. And so uh, they conducted this experiment where there was a group of players, and some of the players, this was in a video game, some of the players uh, had an uh, ability to fly. Think of like Superman, you could just fly. You had this unaided flight ability. And another group of players were able to fly, but they had to use a vehicle. Uh, they were in a helicopter flying around. And some of these players were also given a task of helping go uh, rescue the orphans, go help the children. And some of the players were given a not helping task, just you know, kind of fly around, take a look at the city. And so these four categories here, think of these guys up here as the super tourists, right? Superman, just flying around, looking at stuff. And the second group was the helicopter tourists. You know, they, they could fly around inside their vehicle. The helicopter helpers, they used their vehicle to help those orphans or to rescue those children. And the last group was the super helpers. These were the ones who could just fly on their own, and they helped the kids by just zipping in there and, and, and uh, rescuing. And so the important part here is that this simply framed their thinking. The real test came after they played the game, after they were able to do this. Uh, the person administrating the test, oops, accidentally knocked over a cup of pencils at the edge of the table. Which group of players was more likely to help that test proctor pick up the pencils? I thought it would be these guys, right? I thought it was the people who were going to have played with the helping activity, so they were kind of already primed to perform other helping activities. But that's not true. In fact, it was these guys at the top. It was the ones who could fly on their own, who saw themselves as super, who through the power of the character knew that they possessed this intrinsic ability to help. It wasn't the people who relied on the helicopter. It wasn't the people who were even told, go help these kids. It was the people who saw themselves positively, who saw themselves as the super, and that shaped their personal desire in the real world outside of the game. And so that's really important, right? We, we learned that in games, we want to have these aspirational characters. We want to have these aspirational roles. We look to the game to tell us, hey, you can be cool, right? The normal world is not going to give you a fair shake, but in the game, you can be something more, potentially, than what you are in real life. There's a little bit of a, a dark side to this, though. Uh, again, still very important, how we see ourselves. A test was conducted with the National Football League and the National Hockey League in the U.S. and Canada. 
The teams wearing black uniforms in both sports ranked near the top of their leagues in penalties throughout the period of study. On those occasions when a team switched from non-black to black uniforms, the switch was accompanied by an immediate increase in penalties. So if any of you see people wearing black this weekend, watch the fuck out. <laughs> What's also important here is it wasn't just the players themselves who, oh, well now I'm wearing black, I am, uh, you know, this is associated with an evil color, I'm more aggressive. It was actually the officials adjudicating the game as well ticketed or, or uh, marked infractions on the team that was wearing black, even externally. These officials who weren't wearing black themselves necessarily saw, oh, well, you guys in the black uniform, you probably cheated, right? <laughs> so there's an element of social perception there. Okay, so all these ideas that I've been talking about, you know, what, what, do, you, what do you do with this? How do we, how do we use this uh, in our lives? First and foremost, when you know that these things, these needs, are what people are seeking, you can help others meet them. You know that people want to relate to you when you're playing the game. Be open with them, you know? Try to find a plot thread <coughs> that you can work on together. Uh, if you see someone struggling, go help them out. One of the things I'm always tempted to do in a vampire game is to find a group of players and lie to them, right? There's huge risk in that, because when I go over to them and I lie to them, I'm telling them that I can't be trusted. I'm demonstrating to them a fundamental lack of relatedness. So you are better served by finding a group that has a point of propinquity, that has something in common with you. You will feel more satisfied, and they will feel more satisfied, if, going back to the idea of cooperative play, you're gonna work together. And it is amazing to me that Vampire has been as successful as it is for all of these years, because ultimately vampires are real son of bitches. <coughs> they get together, they lie to one another, and yet it works somehow. And I think it works because there are these bigger than the individual groups that players can belong to. We see clans, we belong to clans. We belong to sects. Whatever game you're playing, you know, sometimes there's covenants you belong to. There are these groups that are bigger than the individuals and even bigger than the sum of their parts because they give you something to belong to. And they give you someone to relate to. They give you these needs that you're seeking. And they give them to you in a way that you wouldn't find if you were just doing it by yourself. So you being aware of why we play, about these needs, leads to conscious satisfaction and fulfillment of those needs. Once you know what you're looking for, you seek it out. You're already gonna seek it out anyway because you're human, but if you don't know that you're doing it, now that you do, it's gonna help you play better. And it's gonna help you be more approachable to other people in long term, very satisfied. And with that in mind, you want to bring other players into the game, right? You want to play this with more than just yourself because a LARP with one person is really, okay, that's just masturbation. Um, <laughs> games are inherently social activity. As long as there have been people, there have been people getting together to perform these activities. And it wasn't really until uh, the late 70s uh, and into the 80s uh, with the rise of, of personal computers, that people played a lot of solo. You know, you can think of a, a lot of uh, individual play, and a lot of the games you'll name are video games. But if you go to other more traditional games, what do you think of? You think of solitaire. What else is there, right? There aren't a huge amount of solo activities. People seek out each other to play with games. And so the idea here is that you're an evangelist, right? Once you know that you're able to meet your own needs, once you're able to meet other people's needs, you immediately want to have more people to play with. You want to have these positive 
feelings. You want to have these needs satisfied, so you're going to bring other people into the game. Raise your hand if someone if someone brought you into the game or you brought someone else into the game. Yeah, look at that. Exactly, exactly. It is so rare for us to be our own point of genesis. So so often we are uh, referred to games or referred to other activities. Uh, we find our commonalities with someone, and the, the relationship we have is stronger with them because we have that point of commonality. How many of you met a significant other through games? You know, yesterday, exactly, uh, Tobias said that something like 34% of players found a significant other through play. Well, of course they did. They both have games in common. You are much more likely to find a satisfying relationship than, like, I like drinking, right? I can go to the bar, and that's not a great thing to have in common with someone. That's just going to end up passed out on the ground. But with a game here where we're getting this, you know, positive psychological reinforcement, this is a very satisfying activity. All right, so now that we've looked at that, what I specifically want you to take away from this today is the idea that, uh, going all the way back to the beginning of our presentation, engagement is more than just fun. You know, we are having a more significant emotional, personal, psychological, sociological response to games than just fun. Absolutely find the fun. I'm not saying fun is bad. I'm saying fun is just one part of why we play games. The value of playing games is demonstrable. It's observable. It's, it's, it's mathematic. I can show you on paper these people had this response, and this percentage of them had an even greater response. Uh, these are biological, physiological responses that you have to play. When you play, you feel good, and that can be measured. It's not just shit I'm making up up here. And of course, because games address these human needs, and we're all human, except those of us who are those rhesus macaques from earlier, uh, these are universal to us, right? Games are for everybody. Games satisfy humans, and us all being human gives us that point of commonality. And finally, engage others with games, and you'll enjoy them more yourself. You'll make them happy, you'll make you happier, and you'll have people to play with, and you'll have ultimately a more satisfying life, even beyond the scope of the game itself, right? So that's really what I was here talking about today. Uh, I want to say thank you to uh, bringing me, uh, to, to, for the opportunity to come out here to speak to you. And I also want to turn over the mic to you, in case you have any questions about this. Uh, and I think we'll do this the kind of way we've done uh, the other ones, where you can just, uh, I guess, uh, form a queue here. Nobody has any questions. I am such a master at presenting information. Yeah, um, you were talking about the studies conducted. Um, these were qualitative studies, as you said, I think. Do you know about like sample sizes? You said you had the data lying around somewhere. Uh, not off the top of my head, but I will provide links in the uh, appendix. Okay, that would be great. Because I'm, I'm more of a quantitative guy, and I like to look at it from that perspective. But as you said, Self-reporting scales are difficult if you want to address games, it's true, yeah. Yes. So yes. okay, we'll be very interested in that. Uh, that particular test with the students that I was talking about um, has actually been performed multiple times as well. And again, I don't remember the sample size off the top of my head, but uh, the, the outcome was reproducible. Okay, so it's quasi-quantitative. Yes, yes. Thank you. Don't be shy, step on up. Step up, step up to, to that Thank you. 
Um, yeah, that was a really fascinating talk, and I think it has given me a lot of ideas going forward as a storyteller. I was just wondering if you had any advice on dealing with people who don't seem, who seem aberrational to the um, objectives that you were talking about, where everybody's playing kind of um, nicely, as it were, for you know, communal fulfilment and so on. And every, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people here have come across players who are difficult and seem to be playing for their own you know, unknowable objectives sometimes, or deliberately seeking conflict and trouble and trying to you know, basically sabotage the storyteller every, you know, every step of the stage. So yeah, I was just wondering if you had any advice on aberrational players who don't seem to you know, adhere to these um, ideals. <laughs> sure, sure. I'm actually I'm glad you brought it up because I, though I mentioned that these needs are universal, uh, not everyone has the same amount of desire in each category for that. Um, and it sounds like in many cases what you're talking about here is a player who uh, is potentially seeking mastery or relatedness through these kind of negative outcomes. Um, kind of like, you know, a, a child seeking, uh, you know, I'm going to act out and I'll get some attention and, you know, some attention is quantitatively better than no attention. But if it's negative, uh, yeah, and I think the first step here is open communication with those players. Uh, especially if you're playing with a player group. Uh, don't make the player feel ambushed, but you definitely want to take them aside and say, hey, look, we're all trying to do something in common here. Uh, can you maybe change your perspective a little bit? Uh, can you maybe uh, potentially create a new character or let's uh, work on a new goal for you? Um, in many cases, players who act out are often either bored players um, or there's something much greater at issue there. Um, and I probably beyond the scope of where we are to talk about, you know, legitimately damaged people. Um, but uh, in, in many cases, you can kind of course correct this behavior by talking to them directly and seeing, hey, what specifically do you want? Um, you are relying on them a little bit there for some of that kind of self-reporting um, that may or may not be accurate, but at least you're opening that channel of communication. A lot of times when we game, we come to the table with this expectation, and we haven't necessarily verbalized this expectation, right? If I come to the table and I want to play vampire because I like romance, and you're running a game that's hardcore about action, blood, and fire all over the place, I'm not going to be satisfied. And that doesn't mean you're a bad storyteller, that doesn't mean vampire's a bad game, that doesn't mean I'm a bad player. What that means is some of those uh, uh, assumptions that are made are unfair assumptions or incorrect assumptions. So first and foremost, work those out with the player. Thank you. Hi. Uh, really, really cool talk. So in my academic life, I study expect, uh, effects of experiential learning. So putting people in simulated contexts where they could develop things like presentation skills, empathy, stuff like that. And I was wondering, um, you know, from the research that you've done and maybe some research principles that are driving uh, things that we do in, in the world of darkness and how you design your games. One of the things that I have observed <coughs> most is uh, an increase in confidence in players. Uh, when they feel good about themselves in games, that gives them the confidence to move forward in other parts of their life. Uh, for example, people who are running the convention here, organizational skill is a huge, uh, an, an immense thing to have to have to put together hundreds of people and make sure they're all in the right place at the right time. And they do that because they're confident enough in their own abilities to get something done, and they may have achieved this as a player, they may have achieved this running a game, they may have achieved this through uh, watching other people play through you know those those various components of play, um, but in almost every case, fulfilling some of those needs or all of those needs and through those various methods of play is making the player more self-reliant. It's giving them, uh, and, and that doesn't necessarily have to stay at the game table. Uh, you know, previously, I, I I've never lacked for confidence, uh, but my wife 
uh, is not someone who enjoys speaking in, in public. What she's willing to do is she's a, she's a producer uh, at the same studio where I work, and in playing games, you know, we, we play a lot of board games together, we play video games together, they've shown her, A, I want my game to be like X, Y, or Z, and B, I feel good enough about myself, I know how this works, I'm gonna lead the team here. And so I think just there's these tremendous psychological benefits to playing games to touch every aspect of our lives. Thank you. Hi, um, this might be a, a little uh, specific question, but I'm a game fan as well. And if you're designing games, um, how do you go forward, or do you have a special method for yourself to check if which of the features that you're planning for the games fit into those <coughs> needs uh, and are the right way to to grasp the player and getting those needs? Uh, through game design, there's a lot of iterative testing. Right? And at every stage, you want to say, uh, I've got this feature, do players like it? Are they engaged with it? Are they not? Uh, and you can see at any given point, yes, this is doing what I want it to do, or no, it's not doing what I want it to do. I think in most cases, you're going to start with a statement of your essential experience. What is this game about? And then you're going to design to that point. And uh, I think one of the scariest things as a game designer that I encounter is the blank piece of paper, right? Like here, write down what the game is about. I don't, I don't know, but you give me one sentence, right? If you tell me the game is X, I can flesh that out for you. Um, and particularly in iterative design, you want to test each feature or uh, small suites of features as quickly as possible. You don't want to get like, hey, here's these 10 features we're going to test now because maybe those two features, you know, two of those features don't work together. You're generating a lot of noise. It's difficult to see the outcomes of any particular one of those features. Um, so test frequently, test often, and know what you're trying to satisfy in the first case. I mean, um, and uh, you probably know it. And, and a design team often there are fights, and 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 what will this feature achieve for our players, and what wouldn't it achieve? Uh, and so, yeah, I, I totally agree with with the iterative uh, game design. Um, that's just a given for for designing. Um, so you're a friend of, of also just check, checking it in, in the team or early. Of a test with with, with uh, different players or just if you can get getting in fresh eyes in there. testing your game. Yeah, do it. Um, I'll bring up a point of failure here. Um, we were working on Requiem. Uh, I really like the idea of the Predator's Taint, right? Of this idea that two of these vampires meeting for the first time is going to create this very very tense, difficult relationship. I did not design a good system to represent that. I hand waved a lot of that away. I said, "Oh, the storyteller will figure this out." And as a result, it turned a lot of people off that setting element. So here's this thing that could have been this kind of uh, Lestat meets Louis for the first time moment, and instead it became this, well, the vampires are constantly fighting with one another, and they hate each other, and whenever they see each other, they freak out in frenzy. No, no, that's not what I intended, and I did not communicate well what I intended. I should have tested that more. Hi, I uh, wanted to ask a small question. You brought up, uh, let's say, a positive, how games positively affect people uh, in terms of self-esteem and confidence and developing some skill sets. And, uh, uh, well, being, that being a role-playing conference, we, we, I think we should differentiate between professional game design and being a storyteller. So it's more of an amateur activity. People uh, do uh, a lot of games by just testing things. 
And uh, do you think, uh, let's say, certain games or certain approaches to games can affect people negatively? Because a lot of games that people uh, run, they don't adhere to these principles because they're not really seeking, uh, uh, a person not really seeking to sell anything. And uh, actually a lot of, I, I think everyone has a bad experiences with role-playing games. And do you think it can actually affect a person negatively long-term? Traumatized, maybe. I think the potential is there, but I don't think that is something inherent to games proper. I think that is, in many cases, a situation where uh, a player has, or, or a storyteller has contrived a situation to provoke a player. Or uh, it may be that the player uh, has uh, an issue of their own that is manifesting through negative play. Uh, definitely, I, I'm a strong believer in the idea that no gaming is better than bad gaming, uh, because if the game experience is leaving you with this kind of negative feeling to it, uh, it can potentially crowd out all of those positive elements that you're getting from the game. And so, uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, the what was the, the movie that uh, the Mel Gibson Vietnam movie? Uh, we were soldiers. Super intense movie. It was a great movie, and I never want to see it again. Right? I never want to have that experience. I was so strongly revulsed by so much of what I saw that as good as I thought the movie was, I don't want to have that experience again. And so that may be the same around the table. I've played games where uh, here's a player who, uh, or a group of players that are seeking more mastery and I'm seeking more relatedness. You know, so here's the power gamers versus the story gamer. So finding the group that's right for you, ironing out some of those uh, differences uh, can help sway that from a negative experience to the positive. And uh, I, going back to your original point about uh, the distinction between professionals and amateurs, um, despite how we're approaching these things, despite the fact that as a commercial designer I want to sell you a game, um, and as a storyteller you want people to participate in, your, participate in your game, we're still both trying to satisfy the same needs. Even though our end result is somewhat different, we still want people to have that positive experience with us and want to come back. Thank you. So you mentioned a lot of positive reinforcements and um, yeah, positive effects of games. So I'm very curious to your opinion on playing to lose. People are actually actively searching for the negative experience. When you ask that question, are you specifically <laughs> looking for negative experience or are you looking for the fact that failure creates interesting outcomes? The latter. Yes, absolutely, absolutely, and I, and I uh, several of you were hopefully at Tenebra Noctis, not this past December, but the one before, and I was playing this really craven ghoul, and for me, the satisfying part of the game uh, was watching people, or letting people kick me around, right? I saw that it was making people feel powerful to have this shitty ghoul to order around and to mistreat, to slap, and to blood bond, and all sorts of atrocious things too. And for me, it was thrilling to be the vessel for that. I was making someone else feel good despite the fact that my character was a miserable son of a bitch, right? And so I still was able to hopefully, knock on wood, create positive outcomes for players through having that failure is fun mindset. Um, and it's not for everybody, right? A lot of people want to win, you know, whatever, the, however they define win. Or a lot of people want to uh, have this situation reward them, you know, kind of carrot and stick style. And if that's what they want, Sure, in the short term, give it to them, but don't let them rely on it, right? You want some kind of balance of those intrinsic and extrinsic rewards. Thank you. Yeah, I was um, 
wanted to ask a question about the, the rewards also um, with the uh, end of the line and uh, enlightenment of that. Thank you very much for that. Um, there's, well, one-shot games basically and uh, participation is the, the reward for the game and it's really great. But uh, there are a lot of ongoing uh, chronicles in the for Vampire Lab and uh, other games. Werewolf Lab, myself, I do a lot of that. And would you, in your opinion, think that uh, giving experience points for participation in the play is actually a bad thing? Because, as you said, some reward in that is uh, coming in this art student study would uh, make players uh, want more and just want this reward and uh, yeah, kill the intrinsic uh, need of playing? That's, that's a great question. And uh, one of the things to bear in mind there is that uh, when you give experience points, I'm going to spend them on the stuff that I want to do in the game, right? So you're giving me the experience points, lets me buy the skill or the discipline or the ability that I want to use. So with that reward, A, it's letting me communicate to you, hey, I want to do some more of this. And B, it's actually reinvesting me in the game, right? So you giving me the experience points. I'm putting them into the stuff that I want to do, and so next time we play, I'm hopefully going to do that stuff, and I'm going to get more experience points, and it's going to keep feeding back into the activity itself. You've given me a reward that's endogenous, that relates to what we're doing already. So by comparison, let's say that instead of experience points, you give me score. I did something great at our LARP, and now I've got 200 vampire points. <laughs> All right, what the fuck is a vampire <laughs> I got 200 of them, I guess that's pretty good. But it doesn't let me do anything with it. It shows, you know, it gives me some modicum of success, some kind of basis for comparison. But the reward doesn't really let me, it, it's an extrinsic reward. It's something that doesn't pull me back into the activity itself. So I think experience points uh, are a great way to get people, A, communicating about what they want to do, and B, reinvesting in, you know, the, the greater chronicle itself in addition to the character. So yes, use experience points frequently. Hi, um, you've been designing tabletop role-playing games, and designing one is actually really weird because you put a lot of words in this book, and then you set it out, and people construct their own activity somewhere else. Uh, how do you do? You have a different approach for communicating to uh, the eventual players and then the eventual storytellers. How do you help them construct their activity? Yeah, that's great. That's great. Uh, in fact, the original books were laid out um, with the setting first and foremost. And that was a change from how a lot of role-playing games were constructed at the time. So back in 1991, when they did the first edition of Vampire and told you, here's this world! And then a little later, here's how you can interact with it. Uh, but really they wanted to show the player the world they were gonna be in. They were gonna give them those opportunities for relatedness through the setting as opposed to through the mechanics themselves. And that's where I think uh, a lot of the uh, organization of a book can certainly help the player uh, or help the storyteller know, okay, I need these tools, I need these place, things in order, I need to uh, make the game flow like this, I need to pay attention to these uh, critical systems. Uh, but uh, I think part of why Vampire was so successful was that it communicated the world to the players first and foremost, and then everyone bought into that world. Uh, one of the huge uh, things that, that still sticks with me is those two-page splats, right? Two pages, and I've got the picture of the vampire here, got some text on what they are, and I look at that, and oh, I want to be that. That excites me. And that immediately grabs players, and it also grabs storytellers, because, oh, okay, I know what I can do with that. I can have this guy be real son of a bitch and stab these guys in the back, and the players will feel great when they finally give him his just desserts, right? And so uh, how you arrange that information 
uh, I think very much informs how you're going to uh, get the players to play. And, and it's tough, right? Getting someone to storytell is tough because it's very rewarding when it is, but so much of it can feel like homework or preparation or, well, I wrote this all this chronicle and the players got interested in this storyteller character. I didn't have any details on it. I'm gonna make this up really long. Uh, and so, you know, you just you can't ever predict necessarily what the players are going to, to do. Uh, you know, your campaign, your, your chronicle notes are probably just a list of things that never happened. And uh, so being able to make that rewarding to the storyteller is a huge challenge for anyone who's designing games, yeah. And that's why I think a lot of players, too, gravitate to video games. As much as world building is fun, as much as setting construction is fun, uh, a lot of players get more immediate satisfaction of those needs through video games. That's one of the things you gotta fight as a tabletop player. You know, you're, you're always fighting for your player's time. I could play in your game, or I could watch Netflix, or I could go play uh, World of Warcraft, or I could play a mobile game. Why am I going to you first? Make your offering more appealing to me. So, it's now 11.47, so we're slowly reaching the wrap-up, sadly, because this has been awesome. Um, God is discreetly coming around there. Shaking his fist at me, sorry. But before that, I snagged up. A question. Um, 2017 Justin gets to go back to 1991 Justin and says you can change one thing about Vampire the Masquerade. What's that thing? <laughs> That's tough. That's tough. Uh, one of the things I really like about Vampire is generation. Is the idea that there are these steps of, of how powerful you are in your blood you're inheriting the characteristics of your sire. And I wish that generation was a little more open-ended, less mathematical, less definable. You know, as fun as it is to think about the third generation, uh, I wish there was a greater sense of mystery to generation. But you really put me on the spot here. It's a great question. I don't know how I would do it mechanically, uh, but I would love for there to be a little more or a little less certainty about where a vampire fell in that kind of hierarchy of potency of the blood. Um, I would also probably tell myself to uh, not drink so much. <laughs> <laughs> then maybe that's it. I noticed that some people on the V5 team are nodding and making this face when you're talking about generation. <laughs> Interesting. Ladies and gentlemen, Justin. Hey, I have a service announcement. Uh, we are going to do something really, really fun in this room right now.